The traditional family, there we go, is already, statistically at least, a thing of the past. Listen to these observations. They're derived from the 2010 census. Married couples represented just 48% of American households in 2010, far below the 78% of households occupied by married couples in 1950. Just a fifth of households were traditional families, married couples with children, down from about a quarter a decade ago and from 43% in 1950, as the iconic image of the American family continues to break apart. In all, 41 states showed declines in traditional households of married couples with children. The biggest change for the decade was the jump in households headed by women without husbands, up by 18% in the decade. The next largest rise was in households whose occupants were not a family, up about 16%. How important is a traditional family? Let's look at a few facts about fatherless homes. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 24 million children in America, one out of three, live in biological father-absent homes. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, nine times the average. The traditional family is an important part of our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul assumes that his readers, both then and throughout history, will value the traditional family enough for him to describe his care for them like that of a mother and a father working together to raise their kids. When Paul uses the illustration of the parent, whether the mother or the father, as we'll see tonight, it's not to command authority over them or to demand respect from them. It is the qualities of being a mother or a father that he applies to his ministry among believers as kind of a test of ministry and attitude in ministry. And you see the qualities of a mother beginning in verses 7 and 8. It says, verse 7, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Gentle is not a word we normally associate with leadership, but it is obviously a mark of spiritual strength. Jesus described himself as gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine, and gentleness is listed among the qualities of Christian maturity in the pastoral epistles. Uh, the word actually here means mild and kind. It indicates that there's nothing harsh or heavy-handed in your dealings. I'm always uh, kind of stunned by how frightened some people are when they come and talk to me as the pastor. And then I found out, find out that they, uh, usually in their background, had a terrible experience with some spiritual leader. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of... I try not to have too much fun with it, but I can tell sometimes people are just totally nervous. And um, I'm thinking, you're making me nervous. Uh, but uh, usually if I get to know them better, then I find out why. I had an experience like that myself a few years ago. Two families were in a dispute, and a pretty well-known Christian leader was asked to mediate. I was asked to accompany the family from our fellowship, and I did. And I can't really go into it, but the meeting was a nightmare. 
It was worse than anything I'd ever experienced in the business world. And you have to understand, um, I was involved for a while with some pretty high-powered business people who knew how to manipulate you and get you to do what you wanted them to do in the title industry. It was, it was pretty rough. But uh, this was worse than anything I'd ever been through in the business world with non-Christians. Uh, I wasn't allowed to comment at all in this meeting. It was just one of the rules that was laid down. And there was no real mediation, only accusations with threats. It was very heavy-handed and manipulative. It actually made me sick. It was everything that gentle is not. Uh, and so, you know, sadly, uh, you know, sometimes Christians, we get into this, we borrow a business model, or we just have the, uh, an overbearing personality, and we try to manipulate people into doing what we want them to do, and, and maybe even for the right motives, you might say, you know, that you have a right end in mind. You're trying to move somebody to a place of maturity, but uh, we should always be gentle and not manipulative and not coercive. You're to be as gentle among believers as a nursing mother is to her own children. Says his, he or she cherishes them. So here's a question for all of us. Do we treat annoying people the way we treat our infant children when they wake us up every few hours wanting to be fed. I know you're thinking, Gene, Pastor Gene, there are no annoying people. I don't know what you're talking about. I just, you know, I flashed on that because I, you know, I, I um, it's, it's not fun to get up four or five times during the night, uh, but, you know, they're so cute, they're so lovable, they're so defenseless, you know, it's like, uh, I'm not going to sleep tomorrow, but, you know, that kind of a thing. But, uh, you know, Paul says, well, you know, what, what, if, what if people in the church are like that? What if, what, if, what if they're annoying? What if they're waking you up in a sense or bothering you and stuff? Well, then we should cherish them like a nursing mom. Nursing mom has an affectionate longing for her baby. She's not only has a duty to feed her baby, she desires to do so. She's not working for wages her baby is dear to her, and she sacrifices her own life for it. Now, the particular application of this illustration is captured by the word impart. The mother literally imparts her own life to her baby as she takes in food, as she transforms food, and then transfers food to the infant that she's nursing. Gentleness and affection among believers begins then with taking in food. Your food is, of course, God's Word. It's the Bible. But it's not enough to simply take in good food. You also need to avoid bad food. When you're nursing, you are careful what you eat and what medicines you take and what you drink. That's one of the, the um, you know, that's the, one of the downsides of, of uh, you know, that time in your life. As blessed as it is, it's like, well, I, I, can't, I can't take this medicine and I can't, I can't eat jalapeno chilies and you know, all, this, all the really good stuff, all the stuff that's going to keep me well and make me happy, you know, it's, it's off the table because I'm uh, taking in food for my infant. You and I fail in our responsibilities as nursing moms if we take in things that could be harmful to other believers. We should be just as careful as we would if we were nursing a baby. And so, uh, you know, nutrition is, is all, some of you are more into nutrition than others. All of you are into nutrition more than I am. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody has a, an understanding that you should take in good food, good nutrition. We could argue about what that means. 
as far as, you know, all of those things. But, but we want to eat right uh, for the proper health and all of that kind of a thing. And, and the same thing in the spiritual realm. Um, it, one thing I do, I, I, maybe you don't do this, you should. I like to know where people are coming from before I start to read them or listen to them. It doesn't mean I won't read their books or listen to their sermons, but I just like to know where people are coming from because I don't want to be surprised later on when I find out you know, what, what they actually believe. And it's not hard to find out what people believe. People email me all the time and say, have you heard of so-and-so? And, and I do what you can do. I Google so-and-so. And um, you can usually find a website, and usually it says about so-and-so. And you go, and you can pretty well figure out what so-and-so is going to say and where they're coming from theologically and doctrinally and those kinds of things. And so I just think we have a responsibility to check things out ahead of time, and, and we certainly are able to do that more now than ever before. Uh, and so check things out. Take things in that are good, solid, nutritious, spiritual food, uh, be cautious. Gentleness and affection among believers is furthered as you transform your food. You take in food, then your body digests it so it can be used to further your life. God's Word is food that needs to be digested to further your spiritual life. The result is a constant spiritual transformation of your thinking that affects your living. Gentleness and affection among believers is furthered as you transfer food. Food produces energy to accomplish work. God's Word gives you energy to accomplish His spiritual work. Get busy for God. You don't want to have spiritual indigestion. You've got to, you've got to produce uh, work. Now, in verses 9, 10, and 11, the illustration changes to that of the other parent, the father. He's not going to be named for a while, but it's all about being a father. Again, I want to remind you that Paul is not using this illustration to command authority or to demand respect. He's not saying, I'm your father. You ever say that, dads? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a standard kind of a thing. You know, when you're in some kind of a, a situation where you say, now listen, I'm your father. Uh, and so you, you've just taken it up a notch. You know, you've, you've just cut, or simultaneously, and that's your mother. You know, and so and then that, that's it. I mean, you, that's code for be quiet, listen. We're, the, the, we're not going to talk about this much anymore. Paul's not doing that. As I said, now you guys, I'm your spiritual father. You'd be nobody if I hadn't come to Thessalonica. Where would you be? You'd be worshiping some dumb idol if I hadn't come to Thessalonica. You show me the proper respect, son. That's not what Paul's doing. He's talking about the qualities of being a father. And the, we see it in the work of a father. First of all, in verse 9, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. Laboring night and day refer to Paul and his companions working to support themselves so as not to be a burden to the new believers. He wanted them to know that the gospel was a gift to them and that though it was costly, it was free. Laboring day and night also describes the father who works hard to maintain his household. Mother protects, a father provides. We have coined the term deadbeat dad to describe a father who refuses to support his children. We don't want to be deadbeat spiritual fathers by expecting other believers to do the work of the ministry. Now, we use this phrase, the work of the ministry, and when we do, we mean the church but not just the church. As to the church, uh, we have been called out by God to meet together. That's just a basic standard 
New Testament concept. You become a Christian and you want to meet with other Christians. And that can happen in a variety of ways. It can happen in homes. It can happen in a small church setting, a large church setting. That's all directed and led by God. But meeting together at some level, it dictates certain work that needs to be done to facilitate the worship of God and the teaching of His Word. And all of us should understand that we have some part to play in that work. One of the things that we ought to try to do as leaders of the church is to minimize non-essential work. And this is where, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular really, but this is where sometimes people get to complaining about church life because churches sometimes are just busy doing busy work and, and, you know, always grinding people for volunteers and we're trying to do this and we're trying to do that and, and um, you know, we shouldn't do any more work than the Lord has called us to do. And we should only do that work that the Lord has called us to do. But within that context, if I am a called out individual to meet with others, then I have... Uh, some responsibility to do the work of the ministry in that group. There is some ministry that I am responsible for uh, in that group. And and I have a philosophy that the church should never really be wanting for volunteers to, to fill every valid position that the Lord has raised up. And if it is, then somebody or some several bodies are not understanding that the church doesn't exist for them, uh, that they exist within the church as part of that living organism to work together for the glory of God. And so, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you're always talking about the the work of the ministry, but, you know, there's a lot that goes on beyond the church. Yes, absolutely, and we're going to talk about that right now, but but before we get outside the church, within the church… God has called us to meet together and he's provided certain facilities for us to do that and if we're following his leading all of us have a part to play in that situation and then the work of the ministry is also everywhere God has scattered us in the world people tell me all the time God needs Christians in my particular field of employment and so they see the church sometimes as just a place to hang out and to attend and, you know, to not get too involved in all that. And that, that's, that's okay. We're not, you know, we're not going after anybody. But their, their uh, philosophy is because my ministry is out in the world being a Christian, whatever I happen, you know, to be as a career. I would say that's okay, but God actually needs you to be a Christian, out in that workplace. He needs you to actually bring Christ into the workplace. And a lot of times people are like, well, I can't really carry a Bible to work. Do you mean you can't or you don't? I mean, did they tell, did they pass a law at your workplace? I remember years ago there was an individual who was in a hassle with the state of California, well, not with the state, but with his immediate supervisor because his supervisor just off, all of a sudden one day went off on him and said, you can't bring a Bible to work. And he came in and asked me about it. I said, don't ask me, is it, is it illegal for you to bring a Bible to work where you work? He goes, no. And I go, well, then bring three. 
let him write you up. Get, go up the chain as far as you have to go before you make a decision. You know, it's a, Dan, it's a Daniel thing. Daniel prayed three times a day. That was his habit. And then these guys got together and they said, we're going to make it illegal to pray. <laughs> Daniel said, yeah, I, I pray three times a day. And so I, we totally are into this philosophy that you come to church to be edified and built up. Together we do the work of the church, ministering one to another that, as we should. But it's to send folks out back into where you've been scattered, whatever workforce or school site or wherever that happens to be, to be Christians. And so the question is, are you a Christian at work or at school? Does anybody know you're a Christian and those kinds of things? And my own personal opinion is you should be pushing the limits. You should figure out what your limitations are and you should push up to them kindly and gently. And maybe you don't agree with me, you don't have to agree with me, but I always think a Christian should be in, right on the verge of being in trouble for being a Christian where somebody has noticed, I've noticed that you're a Christian and I don't like it and I want to do something about it. I want to get you fired. I want your Bible off your desk. I don't want to see Christian jewelry. I don't want to hear you say amen or praise the Lord or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I, I think we need to be affecting the culture in that way. Take it off of us a little bit and just put it, whenever you read these news stories, right, about people who are being persecuted, don't you think, yeah, go get them. Wear 10 crosses to work tomorrow, you know? That's, that's the kind of thing that should be, we should be in the news, I guess is what I'm saying. Those stories should be about us. And, and you know, I've been there. I remember when I was in the title business, I used to, one of the things you do as a title rep is uh, you visit realtor offices, and, and if the client isn't there, you leave a card on, uh, you leave your card on their desk so that they know that you called on them, and and all of that. And so for a while I had this, this uh, little publication. It was called The Good News. And it was a, a two-sided piece of paper. It was pu professionally published. And it had good news from different places in the world, you know, like man saves cat found in tree. You know, I mean, real news stories from Omaha, Nebraska, or wherever it was. And then there was a five-line gospel presentation. The real good news is that Jesus loves you. So. And I did that for months and months until finally... Um, a realtor complained about it. And I was so excited that somebody had complained about it. And in my case, I decided that my employer told me, he called me in and he said, you can't, you can't do this. And I said, why? And he said, because you'll get fired. And I said, okay. <laughs> as long as you made it clear, you know. And, but I was, you know, they knew I was a Christian. I, and so then I quit doing that and I started doing something else. I forgot what it was now, but, you know, it, and, and, uh, finally they started leaving me more alone. But, but I think you should be, I, I don't know, you don't have to agree with me. You can totally disagree with me, but I think a Christian should be right on the cusp of being in trouble all the time with a smile on their face for being a Christian. So in the church, the work of the ministry, if you're here, you're part of a body of believers, doesn't mean you do everything, but you have to do something, obviously. And we're here to equip you, to send you out to be salt and light um, you know, when you, when, you, when you salt something, when something doesn't have enough salt, I made twice-baked potatoes tonight, and they just didn't have enough salt for Pam's taste, so she got up and got the salt, you know, and it made a big difference. 
and when you're in the dark and the light goes on. So if I'm, if I'm salt and light out in the world, I'm going to make a difference. People are going to notice that. And, and if the world is a world of darkness and the light goes on, it's going to offend them at first. Um, the walk of a father, verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Devoutly describes your motives. You're doing it all for the Lord, everything as unto the Lord. Justly describes your public duties towards others to treat them honestly and fairly and without favoritism. Harder to do than we might think. Blamelessly means no charge against you can stick. It's the result of being devout and just. Fathers ought to live so that they are good examples to their children. Your kids may not always follow your good example, but you should not give them a bad example to follow. And the same holds true in the spiritual realm. My fav- one of my favorite all-time commercials, you know, is... Uh, some of you will remember this. It's because uh, I'm an old druggie. And uh, it, was, it was the... The father's yelling at his teenage kid. He goes, where did you learn how to do this? You know, and he goes, I learned it from you. It's like that billboard at Baskin Robbins. You could be your kid's drug dealer, you know, that kind of a thing. So you want to at least be a good example uh, to your kids. Uh, And especially in the spiritual realm, we want to be good examples. We saw in our last study the importance and power of personal example. A bad spiritual example actually can cause harm. And then the words of a father, verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Exhorted here means to come alongside to encourage. It has to do with focusing on the proper behavior. You're to encourage believers to do the right thing just as a father would encourage his son or daughter to do the right thing. Comforted is similar to exhorted, except it has the further meaning of inspiring. It's not enough to tell your kids what's right and wrong. You need to inspire them that what is right is also good for them and will result in blessing. You're to comfort other believers by inspiring them to continue what is good, to look forward to the blessings to come at the end of their life's course. Charged means to witness or testify from your own experiences. We joke about telling kids what went on back in my day But that's the idea. You you should be able to share from your own experience. You can only exhort and comfort it to the extent that the things you share are real to you, that they work for you. Christianity should not be theoretical. Uh, We should not portray, we should not counsel people with a theoretical Christianity that, you know, it's not a do as I say, not as I do. We should, uh, our walk should match our talk, of course. Verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk means walking around and refers to your everyday conduct. Worthy is a a word that means weight, as in a measurement of value, like the carat weight of a precious gemstone. You're to walk around every day with a weight that is appropriate to your value as a child of God. You might even ask yourself of your desires and your decisions, is it worthy? Is this worthy of the name of Christ? Calls you into his own kingdom and glory, looks forward to the second coming of Jesus, He's going to return to this earth and establish upon it a real kingdom that he will rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now, if you're someone who reads Bible commentaries, and I suggest that you do, and you get one on 1 Thessalonians. By the way, it's always a good idea if, um, like, we started 1 Thessalonians or I'm going to start Matthew on Sunday morning, go out and buy a good, simple, one-volume commentary. Warren Wiersbe is one we would recommend, but there are other authors as well. Go into the bookstore. Christine will help you. And uh, just do some reading on your own for the upcoming study. 
two things will happen. You'll, you'll be blessed and prepared better, and you'll bust me on some things. You know, you'll say, oh, you got that from Wearsby. That's where that comes from. But uh, anyway, it's a lot of fun. And so, and there's, you know, some commentaries, they're, they're, they're weighty and they're filled with languages. You know, some of them are every man kind of things, and Warren Wearsby is a good one. Um, <clears throat> so if you read the, some of them in First Thessalonians, some of the weightier ones, you'll see that the scholars get all sidetracked in this section in verse 7 over the particular word translated gentle, because some manuscripts read gentle while others read babies. And that's because the word for gentle is epioi, while the word for babies is nepioi, one letter, the letter N in, in English being the difference. Most scholars prefer gentle due to the context, and I do as well, but for a minute, let's consider if Paul meant babies. Um, it, it doesn't change anything, really. It just gives us a little bit of a different slant. If he meant babies, then we could say that Paul considered he and his companions babies and mothers and fathers. That sounds like a strange mixed metaphor, but Paul the Apostle is the king of strange mixed metaphors. He is often using metaphors that don't seem to make sense, but in the spiritual realm, they work. It sounds strange, but I kind of like what he was getting at because at any moment, I might need to treat a person like the mother described in these verses, or I might need to treat them like the father described in these verses. At another moment, I might need them to treat me like a baby. See, this is what we fail to understand sometimes as Christians, especially if you've been a Christian for a while and you are, let's say we would, you know, call you a mature Christian, it doesn't mean you can't still act like a baby sometimes and need other Christians, maybe not as mature, to treat you like a father or a mother. Uh, and so uh, you know, it's an interesting thing, this family of believers that we have, because we're all at different places in our walk. And even if we're far along in our walk, it doesn't mean we can't act immaturely or need correction, or need a certain comforting, or a certain exhortation, or whatever. And it doesn't mean that we should resist that, thinking, well, I'm, I'm more spiritual than you. When did you get saved? Let's throw down. I've been saved since, you know, whenever, and so I'm not listening to you. Well, yeah, you're acting like a baby right now. And I know I can act like a baby. I love it. But uh, it's not good. And so that's very interesting kind of a, a, a perspective. Um, it doesn't ruin your maturity, but, but we're just, you know, we're at different places. And at any given time, I, meet, I might be or you might be at a different place, a place where you don't actually want to be. And uh, instead of being the father or the mother, uh, you're the baby and others are fathering and mothering you. All the time, however, we are to be the family of God. We might say the traditional church family in caring one for another. Amen? All right. 